This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Stephen King's 1983 horror novel, Pet Cemetery. with another Stephen King project. This is our third one. We did The Shining, and we started it, the, this whole thing with It. It's weird because I feel like we've done another one too. But I yeah, think so. <laughs> we're going back to the well. Back to the old Stephen King well. There's plenty of them out there to do, and I'm sure we will... Actually, I know for a fact we're going to be revisiting It later this year, right? When the when the It Part 2 comes out, mm-hmm. we're going to do the mini-series. I think is the plan. Uh, as, as an episode before we go see It Part 2. That was like a refresher. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be fun. Stephen King's writing is always like, it, it feels like it feels like you're reading something in the same universe. So when, when like theories yep. started coming out that everything's connected, you could you could really see that because it does feel like a story that takes place in the same world as it or The Shining. Well, I mean, it definitely does. <laughs> like um, there's mention of Derry, Maine in this story. Um, I don't know if you caught there's there's one part where uh, the character talks about a St. Bernard that killed four people. No, I didn't. Yeah, that's a reference to Cujo. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, I did not catch that. Yeah, so he references he like he he refers to his other books in these. What's now crazy is that the the biggest one that that popped up for me was when he shouted out his own adaptation of his novel. When did you say that? Somebody was like, "Do you want to go play tennis with me this afternoon?" And he was like, "Yeah, maybe. I, I, yeah, I guess I will." And he's like, "Come on, man! All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy." <laughs> I don't remember that part. Yeah, it was crazy. I wrote it down because I was freaking out. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that. I remember that part where they're talking about playing playing stuff. So anyway, we're, we're, we're kind of, it's kind of a weird start. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're doing Pet Cemetery. We're going to go see the movie in a couple weeks here. Um, I'm excited to see it. It's getting some good reviews early on. Um, but yeah, th- I want to know what your experience is with this novel and this movie. Like, I know there's an older movie, so... I remember this being like really hyped up for me as a kid as like the scariest movie and scariest book. Mm-hmm. And I saw it, I saw it and read it too, too early. <laughs> I was too young to, to have read and, and viewed the movie. You did. You read this book. You read this yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. i read this book. book. I read this book in like, in like eighth grade, probably. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you are more knowledgeable about this material than I am. Well, this this movie fucked me up. This whole this story, <laughs> it really messed me up. I saw the movie before that. So I saw the okay. movie probably like fifth, sixth grade, maybe even before that. And then, yeah, I read the book eventually in like eighth grade because I was going through like this phase of like, I want to read like scary. I want to read everything. Mm-hmm. So I went and grabbed a Stephen King novel and it was Pet Cemetery, And uh, I honestly, I feel like I suppressed a lot of this story, <laughs> like reading it now. <laughs> I think, I don't know, it affected me back then more than I was willing to admit, even in my modern day sensibilities and mm-hmm. rereading it is kind of interesting because I, I always, I don't know, I got a little jaded about the story and felt like it was just about the pets. Like I remembered yeah. it as being about the pets and it's not really about the pets. It's no, about it's, some other stuff. It's about a lot more than that. Yeah, that's that's something I'm definitely picking up on is, is uh, 
you know, more savvy adult reader now is there's a lot of really heady, interesting themes uh, about, you know, death and about burial and how our society handles death and deals with sort of the uh, grimy facts of death that people mm-hmm. want to ignore. And this book like tries to engage with that stuff. It was a bummer too. Like as it was just death. It just talks about death a just lot. nonstop. Yeah. It's just yeah. all about death basically. That's what this whole book's about. And uh yeah, man, it really it really yeah, it brought up a lot of stuff for me and and I really had a pretty powerful reaction reading it. Um for for my own personal experience with it, I I saw this movie when I was really young and I don't think I watched the whole thing. Um because I don't remember much about it other than a few scenes. Mm-hmm. And those scenes like stuck with me like I, you know, there's a couple of uh, pretty dramatic scenes in the movie that 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 stuck with me. And I honestly think what happened was I saw some of those scenes and they upset me. And then I stopped watching because I, I have no memory of like what happened with the rest of it. You know? Yeah, that reminds me of something I wanted to say about the original movie is that I when I watched it, there were scary parts that I definitely stuck with me. But all in all, I think even then I walked away from the movie feeling like it wasn't that scary. Like I walked mm-hmm. away being like, oh, it was, it was a scary movie and there were scary parts that I definitely didn't want to see again. You know what I mean? Like, I guess maybe I was just a kid wanting to not think that it was that scary. Right. But ultimately, I didn't remember this as a very scary movie. I remembered it as like unsettling and like yeah. s- maybe some of that. Well, it's because scary is such a hard thing to quantify. Uh, King talks about this in his opening to this to this book, Some, uh, where he talks about why he thinks of it as the scariest novel and our most frightening novel, I think is actually what he says. Um, but yeah, I mean, because I think, especially as a kid, you know, there's like identifiable things that are scary. It's like stuff that makes you have like, there's like jump scares, right? There's mm-hmm. like a big monster that you look at it and go, that thing's scary. Um, and then there's like the subtler stuff where it just is like creepy or it makes you think about it. It keeps you up at night. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff is a different kind of scary. And I feel like as a kid, maybe you're going to like recognize that less mm-hmm. and you're going to focus more on like, was there a big scary monster? Did it make me have jump scares? Like that kind of stuff. Cause that's more, that's easier to identify. I think that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And that's going to affect everybody differently. Like some people like that's scarier to them than the other thing or, or in like creepy, like um, unsettling themes, like that's not going to hit everybody the same way. Cause some people, won't find the same thing creepy or they or they'll be like they'll just be able to shrug it off and it won't bother them i think what it is is some people if it's not if it's not like blatant some people will shrug it off and not engage with it they'll just be like that wasn't scary and then not really think too much into it in order to keep it from being too scary and i think for this one for me at least it's like i have a lot of experience with like losing pets and losing people and when you have that, you bring that to the story and then it comes to you and then you have this mutual ground where you're talking about some similar s- stuff. Whereas if you don't have that in your background, then I feel like it's you're not going to connect with it in the same way. Right. And I think that's that's part of what I'm talking about is coming to it as an adult, yeah. having at least experienced or have it, being able to empathize with that. Whereas yeah. as a kid, you're just so young and invincible and you think nothing's ever going to happen. And so you don't engage with like people or pets dying as much. Yeah. And and so this all this kind of like taboo subject matter also to me connects really well with King's writing style because I love his attention to detail. I've talked about it in our other many episodes we've done about him, but it just really stood out to me how well he is able to find just like the the detail that like is taboo to talk about in a situation, mm-hmm. you know, like no one talks about that thing and like he talks about it, you know, and um 
I don't know, just that that taboo nature makes it also feel real. It makes it feel like mm-hmm. he's not holding any punches back, right? He's like he's he's going for it all the way, and so you're getting this, yeah. You're, you're, you're reminding me of the scene that happened that, that I that when it, when I read it I was like what the hell is he doing and it was basically like there's a lot of sex in this book yeah and and there was a sex scene and it, it, he was talking about how like during sex with his wife he was like his mind was wandering and he kept thinking about the dead cat and he was really thinking about like the death while he was also having sex with his wife yeah so it was just like a funny thing that like you know, humans are weird things. You know what I mean? Like we're not in control always of like where our mind goes. So in a situation like that, usually if you're writing a sex scene, you're not going to jump to something like that. But realistically, you can see something like that happening in somebody's mind where like they're having sex with someone and then like something shoots in their mind and they're like still having sex with the the person, but their mind's elsewhere. Thinking about something like death, which is like just, I don't know. I think that's like something that King was trying to. Right. Like, and it's taboo to talk about. Right, you know, it's even hard. Sometimes it feels weird, even us bringing it up on the podcast. It's so taboo. It but, was weird when I was reading. It, it was weird, and like I, I noticed that, you know. Yeah, well, and it's interesting too because he does talk about how, uh, in the introduction, he he feels like this novel is in some ways problematic, and I agree with that. Um, I I think there's a few things that stand out to me, and I'm sure there are more that that I am maybe not sensitive to, and I missed. Um, and maybe I'll find more in the second half, which by the way, um, I, we didn't say We're, this is just going to be for the first half of the novel. That's all we've read. We have not finished this novel. And the first half is actually part one of three. Um, just f- half it's, it's roughly half like page wise, but it, the point I was trying to make, um, a couple of problematic things. Um, I don't know if we just want to talk about them at the top, um, and then we can get into it. But, um, I think, I think a lot of his thoughts about the neutering of his cat is really wrongheaded. Um, I think he, he, he puts this little thing out where he's like, Oh, it wasn't some macho bullshit. I actually thought this stuff, 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 but like, it totally is right. The, all the stuff he's describing is exactly the reason that there's a lot of macho assholes out there who won't spay and neuter their, their pets or, or you know, sp- specifically neuter their male dogs or cats. And it's a lot of this like testosterone bullshit of like, Oh, it's going to make them less of a real animal. And you know, it's going to make them all this stuff. And like, he he goes on to like hit on those points multiple times throughout the novel, and I just found myself cringing every time because I don't know. To me, it's like it's it's this is a really bad idea to have out there in the world, and I'm mm-hmm. I, it makes me sad to think about how many people might have read this book and then decided to not neuter their pets, and then you you know you get the mass proliferation of of strays that you know die every day and and uh, kill shelters and all that stuff. So anyway, it's just it, that was frustrating, um, and then. The uh, the Indian burial grounds burial grounds I think is inherently pretty problematic. It's there's a lot of you know this is something that we touched on a little bit with King that he he does this a lot and and he did in the past at least where he connects like you know Native American stuff to being magical and mystical and exotic and and um, othering. It's very othering of of that other society and makes them makes them seem like they're not people. It makes them seem like they're these mystical people you know beings that had connections to i don't know and it's like it, it's it's in some ways it's okay and then in other ways it's not okay so it's and it's gonna and every it's gonna depend on how sensitive you are to it too i think yeah i mean i definitely agree with the the ear otherizing people by by saying that you know they were they did ritualistic burials and then using that as like the crux the ritualistic burial using that and like their culture as the crux for the story and having it be like magical and the way that things become monstrous and like a curse maybe something like that just seems to me like white you know a bunch of white people right 
a bunch of white Christians, specifically Christians, they talk about a lot yeah. in this story, um, which I wanted to talk to you about with with King, how he engages with religion. But um, just the way that he basically is like, these people are normal, they're white and they're Christian. And then, the you know, the Native Americans and their burial grounds and their rituals are black magic and scary yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that, that dichotomy is inherently problematic. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're recognizing that. Um, but I think that, I think this story has a lot to offer um, otherwise. And uh, I was able to look past it, which, you know, speaks to my privilege and my, where I'm at being a white person myself. But right. um, I was able to enjoy this story regardless. Before we get into it, uh, we are going to be doing a bonus episode for our patrons. Um, it's going to be the short story Lacero, uh, which was written by Andy Weir and is a canonical short story for Ready Player One. We'll get into the story behind like how that happened on the bonus episode. And I think we talk about it a little bit on our Ready Player One coverage. Um, but yeah, we're going to get into that. We're going to we're going to release that as a bonus episode. If you want to find out how you can listen to that, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. It should be coming out in like the next week or so. Right. Right. Yes. I, I'm excited to get into that one because I honestly have no idea. I haven't read anything about it. I just know that yeah. what we've talked about in, the, in our, our Ready Player One coverage. That's all I know of it. So yeah. I'm excited. I think it's about it's are. about Sorrento. So right. that's all other than that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be cool to jump into that because it's like Andy Weir obviously wasn't the original writer of Ready Player right. One. So for him yeah. to for, for what was the writer's name? Ernest Klein. Ernest Klein. He, for yeah. him to acknowledge the story as canon is, is pretty cool. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see like how how another author approached that world. So, yeah, you can look for that. So with other authors, we've often delved into their backgrounds and their biographies. Um, for King, it's like I think what we are what we've started to do is talk about the backstory for the particular novel that we're discussing because there's so much out there about him. So for this one, I read the um, you, you said you also had an introduction where it talked about like how he came up with the story yeah. and, and what was the, the story seed, which I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Um, but in case the listener isn't familiar. Um, basically King was invited to become the writer in residence at the university of Maine. in I think it was 1979. And while he was there, he lived in this, he rented this house and it was, uh, it was in sort of rural Maine nearby and, uh, very similar to the one that, uh, the Lewis Creed and his family move into. And while he was there, it was right next to this big or like it's a small road, but it had big trucks that would go flying by on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he basically talked to people in the surrounding area and they told him that like pets die all the time on this road and to be careful with, with his own pet. And then, uh, sure enough, uh, his pet, which is named Smucky, his, his, his daughter's cat, uh, got run over and was killed on this highway, uh, while he was there. And there was also a, a pet cemetery, a local pet cemetery that he found out about and he went to and visited and it was spelled, this, it had the same misspelling that is now the title of this book the, with, the, with the S, which I think is, that's just a really cool detail. It um, is. So there's a lot of these details that make, that go right into the book. Yeah. The cemetery thing, uh, because I read this book, you know, seventh, eighth grade, I spelled, I, I didn't know how to spell cemetery for a while because of the book. <laughs> It got you, man. <laughs> it got me. He he tricked yeah. me. I wasn't I wasn't a advanced enough reader to to know that he was playing a trick. Uh, yeah, it's it's a cool detail because it really makes it feel like if a child was to have a children were to have a cemetery, they would definitely misspell it, and then the townsfolk would leave it. You know, because it's like a yeah. nice little thing. Yeah, it reminds me of like Inglorious Bastards with that misspelling from the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 like it's referencing something in world, 
not the like official spelling of something. Right. Um, so that's cool. Um, so a couple other details. Um, his daughter had a moment where she was like, you know, really upset about her cat, obviously. And she she said like, what, you know, why does God need my cat? He can have his own cat or whatever. And 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 uh, King put that detail right into the book. Uh, we see Ellie having having it almost saying almost identically the same thing about her cat. Um, although her cat hadn't died at that point, but still it was very similar. And then um, Owen, specifically Owen King, um, was crawling towards the road and uh, or walking towards the road. And King remembers running over and and stopping him. And he can't he can't re- remember if he actually. Uh, what was it? If he actually like got there in time or if he tripped or what happened. Um, but f- he, he was able to stop him somehow. Um, and then like a truck went by and it was like a, a near thing to like Owen almost getting hit by a truck too. And so obviously that affected this novel quite a bit too. I think that the, my favorite part about the forward is everything from what we, we've just talked about, um, how he talks about his struggle with thinking of the alternate scenario where the, his kid is hit by the truck and then like the ensuing grief and he like going down that path as a writer and deciding like what you know obviously i don't know if he would he's saying he would do everything that would happen that's happening to lewis but just the idea that the writer is saying he's going down a dark place because he's like my son dies then what then what do i do yeah. and there's a cemetery to me it's it's he i understand why he's saying it's his scariest because he i can't like in all of the rest of his novels he's not actively thinking about his kid dying before him and and what he would yeah. do to to bring to make sure that that kid wasn't actually gone yeah. in, and in some ways it's like maybe he's saying it's his most upsetting novel personally to him and that's um, i think he verbatim yeah. says that basically yeah in the and, and so yeah is that frightening is that upsetting is that different i don't know uh but he did talk about how he showed this novel to people and it upset them i think close friends and family mm-hmm. and he ended up like he ended up putting it in a drawer for for a few years before um showing it to an editor i think who who helped him with it and, and get it to a point where they wanted to publish it and uh, so we almost didn't get this novel. This was almost a trunked novel. Yeah, that is amazing. And to think that like he put, I just wanted to think about how tortured he must have been by the material to be like, to, you pour so much time into developing a novel and having it be fully realized. I guess he's the type of guy who pumps out a book pretty quickly. But oh man, but I want to touch on that. But finish your thought. <laughs> the idea that he, the idea that he wrote this and then was like, you know what, I put all this effort into it, but it's so troubling to me personally. I'm just going to put it in a drawer. Is pretty wild. And to touch on the fact that we almost never got it, he was he was changing re- representation, I think, or something like that. And basically, they he owed one last book to the to his old publishing company or some someone like that. And he the only one he had on hand was Pet Cemetery, and he showed it to I think he said he showed it to his wife, and then his wife was like, "Yeah, show it to them." And then that's yeah. when because just imagine her Tabitha King, yeah her also seeing this scenario play out like thinking about how the story seed and knowing like her, her children if her yeah. children had died and and it must have been really really uh intense yeah and it, it's like he, there's a there's a quote in on writing where he says something about like stop worrying about what other people are going to think of you if you want to be a writer your days in uh what's he say your days in polite society are already over or something mm-hmm. like that and and i was just thinking about that like th- this is so confessional and like all these like details that are so taboo that you know you're not supposed to talk about and he's actively engaging with them and how and and using details from his own life 
you know like it's it's yeah it's interesting to think that to me it's like it's um there's a certain bravery associated to me with anybody who writes something that is deeply personal and and taboo and you know reveals a lot about the person writing it like this and uh you know i don't know props to him for doing it um so i you you mentioned just something about his productivity and i just wanted to touch on it because i find it absolutely incredible um i was looking up because i was like where did this book fall on the timeline of his publication Mm -hmm. so let me hit you with him real fast okay so 1974 he published carrie 75 salem's lot 77 the shining 77 rage 78 night shift 78 the stand 79 the long walk 79 the dead zone 1980 firestarter 1981 roadwork 1981 dance macabre 1981 cujo 1982 the running man 1982 the dark tower the gunslinger 1982 different seasons 1983 christine 1983 cycle of the werewolf 1983 pet cemetery isn't that insane he's really it's like that's like averaging two novels a year and and some of them are the stand and the gunslinger like these are massive novels right okay so then he follows it up eye of the dragon the talisman 1984 thinner 1984 skeleton true 1985 it 1986 i just had to get to it because i wanted to see where it falls in our range of coverage Mm -hmm. so he doesn't write it for another three years and he doesn't just work on it after this. He also writes four other novels before he writes. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. It's insane. I don't know how you, yeah, I don't know how you switch gears like that so quickly. He's, and he said in the past that he at one time was writing 10,000 words a day. Yeah. Which is remarkable. I, I, 10,000 good words. How much revising does he do is what I want to know. Oh, well, he says that in his on writing book, he talks about like he believes you should write a novel. You should draft a novel in like three months, I think, or he might even say two months, something like that. Something ridiculously short. Mm -hmm. He believes firmly in like it should it should happen really fast. And then you put it and he said his his process, he puts it away for six weeks and doesn't look at it. And then he pulls it back out after six weeks like he feels he has enough distance and then revises it. Insane. Um, But yeah, so. That that's his process. I think it's interesting to know about his process. I don't think that works for every writer. Not every writer works that way. Um, I certainly don't. Um, so at this point where I'm at, um, I don't write that fast by any stretch. Um, I wish I could because I would finish things a lot faster. Um, but yeah, I mean that's something you know. I, I would I would be interested to know like if his process was always like that or if it changed over time. I know that he said that he's slowed down of late. Like he doesn't write ten thousand words a day anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know. It's I do find authors' uh, processes like really fascinating, just so I can like see what I want to try and emulate. <laughs> yeah, that is insane. Just I, I, the it's you started and you said Carrie, and then you went Salem's Lot, and then I was like, it's just to write those two novels at all, let alone everything else, is, is yeah. insane. And then you wrote The Shining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And uh, uh, the interesting thing to me is where you where you put the Dark Tower. I didn't realize the Dark Tower the one that really started to connect everything came before mm. this and and it so he had like yes. really well established the fact that like everything was connected for the most part like yeah way before a lot of his major not a lot of them but like some of his major novels i wonder if we're gonna get any of sort of the stephen king what's it they call, call it the macroverse or whatever i wonder if we'll get any of that in this novel or i'll pick up on it if we do i'll be on the lookout for it i feel like we've already got it really yeah what what what, what did you connect with the macroverse if Judd isn't shining, then I don't know what uh, he's doing. 
Well, I guess to me that's not necessarily macroverse stuff. That's more okay. just like a greater. I know what you mean. Okay, like, so you uh, mean like like the it like monster. It's definitely like connected kind of, universe because yeah. we see our connected world because we see Dairy, we hear talk about Cujo, but like yeah, is there any connection to the otherworldly, almost Lovecraftian, you know, cosmic horror elements that are that connect a lot of his other novels? My answer to that would be, I'm not telling you. Okay, because <laughs> clearly you know uh, more about this novel than I do at this point. Um, all right, man. So I think that's enough of a, of a stage setting for this thing. Uh, do you want to have some general thoughts before we get into the synopsis? Yeah, I have some general thoughts. So I wanted to talk about King's foreshadowing and how you feel about it, because mm. I, this time I noticed something that I think I think separates some of his writing from others. And I don't think that it's necessarily... Well, you'll have to tell me because you, you would know better than me. But I feel that some of the time he is intentionally making his foreshadowing really blatant for the reader. I think a lot of the time you can because he's he's having his characters in their minds. It's almost like they're this is like a retelling. And they're like, at that point, I didn't even realize that this that, you know, the the trees would be something that would play a part later, basically. Right. So like he's he's doing this actively throughout the novel and I wonder if it's to make audience members one feel like they're following along and two to like build like that dread. Yes, uh the latter for sure. I think uh I think we yeah, so what you're talking about is foreshadowing. It's it's particularly like a kind of foreshadowing because it's not he's not trying to be coy about it. Like he right. tells you. It's blatant. That's what I mean. And it's like you know, I, he I tells you feel... like he says like Norma died 7 weeks later or something like that at one point. Um, you know, or she would die seven before, weeks later. Before she actually did Before die she's in the died story. in the story. Right. Like, he, he reveals that. And he reveals, you know, other things, you know. Uh, he, he talks about uh, church getting hit um, by the truck before it happens. Um, things like that. And um, when he says that, he's revealing to you something that's going to happen. And I think the effect that that creates is, does create dread in you because it's an inescapable, it's a horrible thing that is coming and he's telling you up front that it's going to come. And so you know it's coming. And so the rest of the time you're reading up until that point, you're like, oh, shit, this thing's coming. And it also kind of like makes you want to read to that. You're like, whoa, shit, that's crazy. I want to find out like what happens right. when that happens. Um, so it has like multiple effects where it works on you, I think, in multiple ways. The He also does. So those are the blatant ones where he out and out says something that happens. But there are other times where he's referencing something that you clearly know is going to come back. Like, for instance, yeah. when Judd was telling Ellie not to climb on the on the logs and mm -hmm. like because you'll fall off you'll fall off and who knows what's going to happen that directly tied into that that was a red flag like you're like okay well this is an important fact in the same way that he's like don't get lost off the trail and he goes yeah. on and on and on about getting lost in the trail and why it would be bad and it comes to you come to realize that if, if you know that's going to play a part and i mm -hmm. i i also noticed like this in in the shining where with the boiler it's just like creeping. You don't know what's going to happen. Creeps. It's a little more subtle. It's a little more subtle than him telling you out and out what's going to happen. But he keeps talking about the boiler. So, you know, it's important. Yes, and so he does this like foreshadowing that's blatant. And that's what I was wondering if it's like, is it for the reader to feel to feel that same kind of dread, I guess. Yeah. And I think so. Uh, it does also have another effect, which uh, I think is a is an interesting one to analyze because I you don't often see this in movies because maybe it doesn't work as well. But in telling you that church is going to get hit by a, a truck in telling you that Norma's going to die. Um, it makes it when it happens, it makes it less of a surprise mm -hmm. um, for, for you. Cause you know, it's coming. Um, but maybe on the other hand, it also will make it feel less like um, 
less like a twist, right? Like a shocking twist. Oh, shocking twist. The cat got hit by a truck. It's like, no, no, he told you that was going to happen. You know what I mean? So this isn't a, this isn't a twist. We're like, this is, we all know this is going to happen. Right. And so when he, when he establishes these things early enough, it's almost like it takes away a little bit of the shock value. Um, but, it, but I think the trade-off is for the creating the dread and for creating the, the anticipation of the event. And I would so, also, yeah. And I would also say I, the, the main thing that sticks out to me is that if he, if what, if he's over here foreshadowing something, when he eventually does something that he doesn't set up and it is shocking, it makes yeah. it that much more shocking because you expect yeah. him to set things up and you expect it to show like everything to go how you think it's going to go. Uh, so it's also an interesting note real quick that, uh, this is also created partially by point of view. Uh, this, this is our first novel with King where it is pretty close POV to one character. Um, we're basically only getting Lewis Church, Lewis uh, Creed's thoughts and, and, and observations on things um, with a little bit of semi-omniscient stuff going on. And then um, it's definitely also distant, though. So it's close in that it's close to his mind, but it's distant, um, I guess I mean, like, temporally. Like, it's it's it t- you get the feeling that this is Lewis telling us from the fu- some future time about something that happened in the past. He's reminiscing about it. There's a moment where he these these things keep happening with the character and i wanted to ask you again if you think that this is like a shine thing or if this is like a narrative like he's trying to do like a disjointed narrative type thing to to play with the reader um there's a moment where he's like he's driving to to the school and he goes past the bikers and he talks about how like bikers and joggers like don't obey the rules at some point and they're basically Mm -hmm. just in the way and they don't it's like they don't care about getting hit and then he's like in the office and he when the kid comes in who got hit he was like talks about how he it was almost expected like he was almost expecting this to happen on his first day and i'm wondering if you feel like that's him shining some sort of that's uh that's king brilliantly playing with the very real phenomenon of uh, of like uh it's not even deja vu but it's just like a it's like a different kind of deja vu that i think everybody has where when really bad things happen sometimes you may feel like oh i i, I knew something like this was going to happen right and and uh yeah i don't know it just it's it's like a weird phenomenon and like i think it's unexplained uh, and i think uh he can take that inexplicable but real thing and and in his world connect it to the supernatural right and i think that's the exact almost how you just described that is almost exactly how we describe shining in our in our shining coverage so it's like you could you you could say that individually with this with this novel on its own it was just a coincidence but also for like big king fans you could you could look at point to that and be like that's potentially a moment well and yeah and you could talk about like all the kids and it potentially could have like a bit of shine to them too right yeah and like that's how they're able to do the things they're able to do so yeah, yeah I, I can see that um but let me let me let me get into a little bit of synopsis here just so I can, we can give us specific things to talk about i'm going to break this up into several paragraphs here all right so opening up the novel lewis creed a doctor from chicago is appointed director of the university of maine's campus health service he moves into a large house near the small town of ludlow with his wife rachel and their two ch- young children, Ellie and Gage, and Ellie's cat, Church. From the moment they arrive, the family runs into trouble. Ellie hurts her knee after falling off a swing, and Gage is stung by a bee. Their neighbor, an elderly man named Judd Crandall, comes to help. He warns Lewis and Rachel about the highway that runs past their house. It is constantly used by speeding trucks. So I think this is just a good opportunity to talk about different characters here. Um, and right off the top, I want to point out, Creed and Church... Um, pretty blatant uh, symbols there, right? 
for 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 uh, faith and and Christianity specifically, creed, church. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do, what do you think he's trying to say with that? I, I, yeah, I mean that's that. I I wonder. Did you feel that this this book had more um, religious elements than his other stuff? Because this one very specifically struck me as, and I w- I wonder if Stephen King was raised Christian or Catholic. I believe or, he I believe he was. Uh, I think that was in on writing. It's been a while since I've read on writing, which really gets into a lot of his his like story growing up. But I think he was raised in a in a I want to say Catholic, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I could be wrong about that. Because I mean. Yeah, he, clearly there's some symbolism being being set up with the idea of the family creed, like yeah. like what what creed would would that represent? I'm not sure, but church is interesting because you're taking something that's holy and then you're creating this unholy union when yeah. church returns and yeah, well yeah, and the, the 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 you know the the church of Christianity is based off of a resurrection, right? Yeah, so you can see that you can connect that maybe to the cat. Being so re- resurrected the there's a moment later on where lewis is talking to ellie about about where you go after death and he kind of touches on his his he goes through kind of like different people's belief systems and he goes through his own and what he struggled with and i'm i feel like that's definitely very much stephen king saying his own views as well i felt like at least because i i was just assuming that he was raised christian and d- not practicing anymore and felt the way that the character did about not necessarily there being nothing after death, but not being willing to subscribe to anyone. Yeah. Well, and I liked how he said, um, I think, in, I think in the part you're talking about, he said it goes, it goes one of two ways. Either there is something afterwards or there's not. Right. And, and that's kind of how I feel about it too. And, and it's like, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I identified with that pretty strongly too. Cause it's like, um, I, I, I'm an agnostic and I'm an agnostic because I recognize that to me, there's no way for me to know what happens. Mm-hmm. And I agree either. It goes one of two ways, either something happens or nothing happens. Um, and it's impossible to know. I also like the moment where he addressed kind of potentially again, I'm just inferring and I might just, you know, I might just be, you know, blown smoke, but, um, <laughs> King also has the moment where he talks about how, like, maybe if there is something, maybe each religion um maybe you do get the the thing if you're practicing whatever religion maybe that is your your ending maybe that is whatever you believe is what you get yeah that's interesting thought yeah yeah that is interesting because it's i mean how many holy wars have there been for people saying i'm right i'm right and then ultimately for it to just be something that you know maybe we should all just be be good to one another and and like who knows what happens after all this is done so how do you feel about judd crandall I mean, you know more about him than I do, I guess. So that's probably unfair to ask. But, How do um, I? Okay. Specifically in the book. Um, yeah. I like him. I, I mean, I like yeah. the, I, I obviously like the fatherly role that he plays. And then the, yeah, up he, to the point that we've, so this is jumping ahead a bit, but up to the point that we've seen, he seems like an honorable type type of person. He seems like the kind of guy to do the right thing. And then yeah. he does this wrong thing in having, lewis bring the cat back because he feels in his mind there's this pull which is yeah. another interesting thing that we're definitely going to talk about more there's a lot of supernatural pulls and supernatural like are almost supernatural like compulsions that people exactly. have here um and it feels to me like uh, like lewis is drawn to J- judd in an, almost a supernatural way as well well to the judd being pulled to the pet cemetery to me seems like something that that doesn't fit his character which i think is to set up how strong this pull is and to set up 
the fact that like if you've been there you can be affected by it and you'll probably end up having someone like someone you might be a recurring guest in the pet cemetery Mm. Uh, yeah but i mean judd overall i i like that he stuck by his values at the very end when the hardest thing that happened to him could happen and he lost his wife he didn't bring the wife to the pet cemetery yeah you're right uh well let's get into the next part of the the synopsis here since we're, we're, we're skipping ahead Judd and Lewis quickly become friends. Since Lewis's father died when he was three, he sees Judd as a surrogate father. A few weeks after the Creeds move in, Judd puts their friendship on the line when he takes the family on a walk into the woods behind their home. A well-tended path leads to a pet cemetery, misspelled cemetery with an S, on the sign, where the children of the town bury their deceased animals. The outing provokes a heated argument between Lewis and Rachel the next day. Rachel disapproves of discussing death, and she worries about how Ellie may be affected of what she saw at the cemetery. It is explained later that Rachel was traumatized by the early death of her sister Zelda from spinal meningitis, an issue that is brought up several times in flashbacks. Lewis empathizes with his wife, realizing that the fault of her trauma rests with her parents, who left Rachel at home with her sister when she died. Okay, so we can get into that now. Um, I wanted to ask you, man, and and this is going to be potentially kind of personal, but... Uh, this is a kind of heavy material, so I want to mm-hmm. get into it. Do you remember when you first learned about like mortality and that people die and that maybe pets die, things like that? I mean, I can't, I can't re- recall the exact moment that it clicked for me, but I can remember that losing the first, the first family member that died. I remember being aware of it, and I don't think even at that time I understood fully. You know what I mean? I, I don't think I yeah. was grappling with it. I think it was just like that person was here and then they were gone. And it didn't affect me till I was a little older. Do you remember losing a pet when you were young? Yeah. Yeah, I remember losing a, a dog when I was about... Um, I was probably like 11 or 12. Yeah. And that was tough. I was, interestingly enough, I was the only one home when the dog died. Oh, really? I was like, I think I was about 12 because I don't think my parents would have left me home earlier than like 12 or 13. But... Mm-hmm. I was, yeah, so I was the only one home. So very similar situation to kind of Rachel's, I mean, I don't want to say that a pet, I mean, to me, the pet was as important as a family member, but I'm not trying to minimize Rachel's. I think the book makes a lot of comparisons between pets and and people and and how, you know, we feel grief for both. Yeah. Definitely. But Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I, specifically, I can remember um, a really weird story that my dad tells of the first time a family member died. I, I... this is super creepy, actually. I may have told this on the podcast, actually, but my dad asked me, my grandmother died, his his mother, and I was about five or six. And my grand, my dad was like, do you want to say goodbye to grandma? Because she had passed. We had been in the room or nearby and mm-hmm. she had passed and we went in the room and he was like, do you want to say goodbye? And I was like, I turned to him and I was like, no, I don't need to because I saw her leave. As in like what he saw, got from that was basically I said like her spirit, I saw her spirit leave and I said goodbye to her spirit, which... Mm. Don't I don't remember. It's a story being told to me, but very, right. uh, very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So for me, uh, I, I think back about I, I had two pets. Um, well, I had a thir- I had I had a, ca- a cat named Gandalf, <laughs> Lord of the Rings reference, uh, who died when I was really young. Um, but I don't remember that very well. I was too young to remember that. Uh, this is morbid, but was he gray? No, he was he was a black cat. Um, although he did have I think he had like white patches and stuff. Then yeah. we had a dog named Velvet who uh, died when I was, I don't know how old. I mean, I want to say I was like five or six, very young. And I remember it being weird because it was like, I didn't really know how to understand it. 
and right. and um yeah i remember being sad and but like other people were more sad than i was because i didn't really understand it mm-hmm. and and then i kind of got sad over time as i thought about it more um yeah and you know in 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 reading this book like brings up all these memories i also had a cat named aslan uh who's another literary reference <laughs> um and aslan was hit by a car um which i hadn't thought about in a long time until yeah. I read this book, that uh, Aslan Aslan got hit by a car, I and mean, we never know we never knew who was driving the car or anything. Um, so you know, somewhere out there, someone hit a cat, and you know what I mean. Like I don't know, it's just it's crazy to think about um, that that happened. And and uh, I will say, my parents never lied to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they always I don't I never got told a story about like a farm upstate or anything like that. Right. Um, and I think it's really interesting how he talks about how like children never forget the lies their parents tell them, uh, which I think is a really fascinating line. Right. And, and I, I thought back about it and I was like, I think my, my parents were pretty upfront up with me about death. And like, I think another early death in my family was our, my great grandmother when she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I remember I had a very similar reaction to Ellie with Norma because I remember feeling like, Oh, she was very old. Right. And that's what happens to old people. Right. Like that was like, that was fine. I was fine with it for some reason in that regard in a yeah. weird way because you're a kid and like you, you, you learn certain things. And one of the things you learn is that old people die. So you're like, okay, but you know, and then that's always different when a, when a pet dies because they don't, you haven't made that connection. Like they're supposed to, um, you know, quote unquote supposed to. So anyway, I don't know. That just brought up all that stuff from childhood with me. And, and I found it's really affecting. Yeah. The tough part about this story that, that starts to get introduced is like, put once we get the details of what goes i guess we haven't really gotten enough of the details for us to make a decision on that yet but i guess maybe tracking going forward thinking about the grief and thinking about that immediate shock and that immediate reaction if it's a sudden thing i mean either way but just thinking of like missing someone so much or some some pet so much that you're like are you willing to bring them back in a lesser in a lesser form would you like like seeing if you would be desperate enough to yeah, I, I have a feeling that's going to be a big thing in the second half of this novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can feel that's where this story is going, right? Because we see it already with Church, uh, who gets brought back. But before we get to before we get to that part, I guess uh, there's also the all the stuff with the sister and the the childhood illness and the and she even says that they thought of her as this like dirty secret who was in the back room, right? And uh, how she you know was ill for a long time and it was this big stress in the family. And yeah, that's like, that's to me, that's the kind of taboo stuff that you don't hear talked about a lot mm-hmm. and, and how Rachel, uh, was so young when it happened that she was ha- forced to try and deal with these things that were just, she was not equipped to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then I also really like how that carries through into adulthood. And we see that like Rachel never really came around on this stuff. Like it's still an ongoing thing. And I love that. It's like, I feel like Lewis in some ways is in denial about death and he feels like it's something that is like quote unquote natural and that you can deal with it and he sees it all the time and he's well adjusted. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I feel like Rachel is the more truthful character in that she is still struggling with it. And I think Lewis, I mean, I think we're seeing him be put, put, put to the test here. Like how, how well adjusted are you really? Well, I think, yeah. Yeah. And I would say that just in terms of like, her being closer to a real character. I think that there's like a, there's also a middle ground there. You know what I mean? There's somebody who is able to eventually grieve and deal with death versus someone who's like, has like unresolved issues with, a de- you know what I mean? She's clearly dealing with things that stem from what Lewis is pissed off about it, uh, about, which is like her 
being for feeling like it's her fault or being forced into a situation where she can't she doesn't have the capability to take care of this person and because of that it's like something that's being put on her by her parents it's kind of like almost a lie that her parents put on her in in his way of thinking you know because he keeps talking about how his mom lied to him about sex i think right yeah and he carried that where babies come from right so he carried that through and he's still mad about it as a character here so you can see something that is affecting her from childhood that's carried through as well yeah uh there's also i think a lovely observation that king has when he's talking about i mean lovely in a dark way i guess but uh, he's talking about relationships and he talks about um, how two people could know each other for years and be married and, you know, feel like they know each other really well. But it's like foolish to think you can truly know a person. And then he talks about how they're having this conversation and he hits like a cold spot or like dead air or something. He has like a really interesting way of describing it. And then she has a reaction that like he didn't expect and how he's like stumbled into a like unknown area of this person that he thought he knew. Right. And I thought that was so true to life, like uh, how how that can happen, you know, and how you can you, you, people can surprise you that you've known for many many years, and and how you can't really truly know somebody, right? Like not not to where like that wouldn't happen anymore. I don't know. It's just really like really smart observation. Well, yeah. To speak on that, it's like what what would it take? How could you ever think to know somebody fully one hundred percent? And you think like people are married and they're together forever you still don't know that person through and through what their thoughts would be in every scenario. Um, Although people like to think that. So yeah, it's a good observation for sure. All right, let me get to this next bit of summary here. Lewis himself has a traumatic, traumatic experience during the first week of classes. Victor Pascal, a student who has been fatally injured in an automobile accident, addresses his dying words to Lewis personally, even though the two men are strangers. On the night following Pascal's death, Lewis experienced what he believes is a very vivid dream in which he meets Pascal, who leads him to the deadfall at the back of the cemetery, and warns Lewis not to, quote, go beyond, no matter how much you feel you need to. Lewis wakes up in bed the next morning, convinced that it was, in fact, a dream, until he finds his feet and bed sheets covered with dried mud and pine needles. Nevertheless, Lewis dismisses the dream as the product of the stress he experienced during Pascal's death, coupled with his wife's lingering anxieties about the subject of death. So, yeah, what's your take on this whole all this Victor Pascal stuff? I can't help but bring in some of the movie stuff, which I think at some point we're going to have to do this movie, the the first movie as a bonus episode or something. Yeah, I think that'd be a great bonus. Um, Maybe we can do that, do that next month or something. Would be cool to kind of revisit after we've seen the new one, go back to the old one. Yeah, because it's there's a lot of differences. But Stephen King was the screen. He's the screenwriter on that one. So like he made sure that it stayed fairly faithful, mm. but there were changes. So yeah, moving past that and only talking about the book, the Pascal stuff, what do you think right now urged him to say his last words to, to Lewis? Like did, what did you, did you feel like you got any sort of sense of like what that was coming from or why that was happening? Cause nothing's really happened yet. This is, this is potentially sort of that Lovecraftian element because it is kind of inexplicable it's otherworldly it's it's is he insane or is it is it did it really happen and why would he address him by name this guy didn't know him and if it's not if it's not see so i kind of feel like maybe it wasn't actually pascal talking to him but some other spirit or some other force speaking to him through through victor to be yeah i think that that's what we're supposed to draw from that but I mean, the naming, the, if calling his name could be explained away by like a name tag because he's clearly at a job where he That's might have true. a name tag. But he, like, 
it just feels like the first moment of anything happening. But we haven't, nothing's happened. He hasn't, the like church hasn't died yet. He's in buried church yet. It's yeah. just, he goes to work and nothing and, and something's already encroaching into his life. I just love this scene though. Um, I love, I, this is like death. You know, uh, we, we get the story from Judd where he talks about how back in the day, Judd, you know, uh, death would just like come to your house and, you know, join you for dinner or whatever and bite mm-hmm. your ass and all that stuff. And this is like death doing that to him, right? Like this is death coming to his place of work and, you know, a kid dying on the floor on his first day. And uh, one of the reasons why I don't think I could ever be a doctor, by the way, um, I don't know if I could handle this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's wild. And, and, um, tragic and it's it's in it's and it's like this presents us with all of the like unfairness of especially an abrupt death and like a young person mm-hmm. and how even this doctor who we've seen talk about how well adjusted he is you know like this is the proof that like it can still bo- affect him and he still grapples with it and yeah. doesn't know how to handle it and uh yeah i don't know there's a lot of descriptions about the wounds that are um really taboo and feel really real i think he talked about like he consulted with a doctor to get a lot of this stuff right which i think shows um it felt it felt true to life to me having lewis be a doctor is a really great choice to me because doctors are such authority figures in a medical sense and a lot of this story has ends up with sort of like like diagnosing uh church as dead when he first sees him clearly he was dead and then he's like self-diagnosing sometimes which leads to kind of like his his denial on a lot of issues Mm -hmm. he's like self-diagnosing and saying like oh i had a sleeping fit or i had this or i had that and right uh, he's rationalizing right he's rationalizing these things and i I think that was a great choice yeah i i um so lewis is not necessarily like a completely likable character (laughs) i think um we see some stuff in him we see some darker things we see some some thoughts that i mean at the very beginning we see him like thinking about just dropping his family off at a gas station and like hightailing it down to florida and just being like because he's fed up with them right so he's not like a like a super likable guy um in every way but i like him as a protagonist because he's so rational and to me i identify with that and I, and I love the way that we see him rationalizing crazy shit that happens to him. He starts coming up with all these reasons to explain it. Um, he comes up with like ways that Victor could have known it, or it was an auditory slash visual hallucination. And he starts like codifying it. And, and when he has his dream later, he's like, I actually was actually a somnambulous moment where I was sleep sleepwalking and it was mixed with a dream. And like, I love that he's able to, to, to break it all down and, and try and make it seem like it's not actually supernatural. And of course, because it's a Sting- Stephen King novel, we're like, well, of course, it actually is supernatural. But if it was me in real life, I would totally do that. If some crazy shit happened, I'd, I'd try and explain it. I'm sure I would. Let's get to this next bit of uh, summary here. Lewis is forced to confront the subject of death at Halloween when Judd's wife, Norma, suffers a near-fatal heart attack. Thanks to Lewis's prompt attention, Norma makes a quick recovery. Judd is grateful for Lewis's help and decides to repay him after church has run over outside his home at Thanksgiving. Rachel and the kids are visiting Rachel's parents in Chicago, but Lewis frets over breaking the news to Ellie. Sympathizing with Lewis, Judd takes him to the pet cemetery, supposedly to bury Church. But instead of stopping there, Judd leads Lewis farther on a frightening journey to the real cemetery, an ancient burial ground that was once used by the Mi'kmaq Indians. There, Lewis buries the cat on Judd's instruction. 
Okay, so a couple things there. We talked already about the normal st Norma stuff. I think this is where it is because it's interesting because it's like we see we see uh, Lewis sweeping in and saving her, mm -hmm. and this moment is robbed of a lot of its poignancy almost when we're it's dropped that she was going to die like seven weeks later. Right. So you're immediately like, as much as you're feeling all good about him saving her life, you're like, oh shit, well she's going to die seven weeks later, and it feels like inescapable too, right? Yeah. And that just makes death loom over this whole story. Mm -hmm. It's constant. Like I said, I did not remember that being such a huge... I remembered clearly there was death, but it's like, it's overbearing sometimes. Like, you're just constantly reading about death and, like, existential stuff about, like, what happens when you die. And, and it, yeah. gets to be, it gets to be a lot. Uh, yeah, so here we are at Judd's decision to try to help, in quotations, uh, help Lewis to bring church back. And when they go to this, go to this place, this place beyond the cemetery... There's this allure to it. There's like this pull that they're feeling. They feel a lot better. They, he'd been like tired from carrying church up all the way up miles uh, into this cemetery area. And they're both feeling like really happy. And they're talking mm -hmm. about it. And I think it's this like sort of draw to this area, which is part of the reason why I think Judd couldn't couldn't not come back because he's like, oh, I can make this person who saved, I can pay back this person who saved my wife's life while at the same time going back to this area that brought me some joy or or just going there is like is like a drug or something yeah well places having power is a big like theme in in king's work in general right like we see that with the shining in mm -hmm. the stanley hotel uh or sorry the overlook hotel uh we see that uh, in, in it with the entire town of Derry. <laughs> um it's you know a haunted town essentially and and here it's i think the pet cemetery is the haunted place in this story right um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, places having a power and an energy to them, I think is something that King really loves to talk about. All right. So I think I'm just going to read this last bit of summary here, and then we can, we can kind of just go with off with anything else that we want to talk about with this first half. Mm -hmm. So Lewis thinks that the subject is finished until the next afternoon when church returns home. It is, however, obvious that the cat is not the same as before. While he used to be vibrant and lively, he now acts ornery and quote, a little dead in Lewis's words. Church hunts for mice and birds much more often, and he rips them apart without eating them. The cat also smells so bad that Ellie no longer wants him in her room at night. Judd confirms that his condition is the rule, rather than the exception, for animals who have been resurrected in this fashion. Lewis is deeply disturbed by Church's resurrection and begins to wish he had never done it. Um, also in, within the section is Norma, Norma actually dying. Yeah, let's, let's talk about all of that. Let's, let's, anything else, you, you know, it's now fair game. So the first thing I want to talk about is Judd and his history and kind of like his introduction to this this area and hearing about, I guess, specifically hearing about the town and some of the people uh, back in his day when he loses yeah. his dog spot. What do you make of this guy who like is waiting around for the kid? He's like throwing throwing rocks at the window, wanting to bring him there. And he's like the town. So it was like Sammy or something. Yeah. And then he's willing to take this kid's dog it just seems weird that he would want to take this kid's dog to, yeah. to bring it back but then well and it's explained that it's it's like the draw of the cemetery once you've been there like right. you're like cursed essentially and you're gonna constantly bring people back to it which in that sense it's like it self-perpetuates um if, if it creates that feeling in people like that's how it's continued to be an important place for hundreds of years is the implication yeah um which is it makes it feel like it's this evil place that wants to go on and continue to exert its influence which is a totally stephen king thing to, exactly <laughs> right? and we learn this kind of 
we learned that the Native Americans felt that the the land what what was it specifically? It was cursed in some way, but there was a there's a certain phrase that they use. Do you remember? Oh, uh, the ground is like soil, not no uh, poisoned or something like that. It's the idea that the ground has been poisoned, and and so that almost leads to it's not even necessarily the Native American burial that's that's bringing anything back. You know, it's like the the ground has been tainted and poisoned, so. It seems like they they even say like the Native Americans moved on to another area. Yeah, and there's talk of the Wendigo, which I don't know uh, how important that'll be going forward. But um, I think the Wendigo was said to have caused the like desecration of the ground or something. Yeah. Um. So maybe there's some sort of creature out there. The it yeah. isn't the Wendigo. It's like a northern thing, right? It's like specifically like a nor- northern tale that people. I was about to talk about out my ass about it, but instead I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> All right, so I just looked up what the Wendigo is. I wasn't 100% sure. Um, it's an al- in Algonquin folklore. Uh, the Wendigo is a mythical man-eating creature or evil spirit native to the northern forests of the Atlantic coast and the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada. It may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous. It is historically associated with murder, insatiable greed, and the cultural taboos against such behaviors. There you go. Okay. I mean, I th- I think it's cool that he took he took like an existing folklore or an existing myth or yeah. legend and and like built it into the story, just because yeah. it seems like I don't know. I think each region, like everywhere, I would say everywhere, has like some sort of legend or creature, Sasquatch or Chupacabra. So for him mm-hmm. to just take that and kind of kind of uh, at least rumor it and have it be like like uh, uh, cryptids and stuff, yeah, yeah, like something have something looming that is potentially a creature when clearly it's just like the 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 demons and the things that are going on are are specifically put on by the people who can't fight the urge to bring back loved ones. It's it's I don't know. It's very Pennywise, right? Like Pennywise is preying on people and like they're their needs or their the thing their fears like, their fears and in this way they're he's preying on a fear of losing people yeah what about uh did you catch the i mean you had to have the uh the maurice sendak oh my god uh, where the wild things are yeah i was gonna bring that everything up. connects to our podcast man another another <laughs> project we covered at some point what's the like six degrees of kevin bacon <laughs> <laughs> at some point we'll be able to six degree of ink to film and just anything like in some yeah. way we'll be able to connect one project or one one specific thing to we're, something we've specifically covered. the where the wild things are was referenced in like another book we were reading recently right can you remember what it was wow um because i can't so <laughs> i think i do remember it being referenced yeah what was that I can't remember, but I, I yeah. do want to say if, the if way you, that it was listener, if you can if you can remember us talking about it, definitely send us an email because I would love to know. But I'm not going to like listen to all our old episodes <laughs> to find it. So <laughs> but I, I I know we talked about it in another project not that long ago. The way that the reference was dropped originally was during that scene where uh, where Pascal is dying. He said like yeah. as soon as he's dead and like all the people showed up, he said he said like the wild rumpus begins or something Let the wild rumpus begin yeah and, and i was like oh my god and he's like in the in the immortal words of marie sendek or something like that <laughs> yeah. and i was yeah. like and he said like it was like in the in the words of marie sendek and i was like why is that name familiar and he's like let the rumpus be i was like oh my god <laughs> the wild where the wild things are reference yeah and he keeps referencing it actually because it's it's ellie's favorite book yeah. So as far as general thoughts go, I I have two more that I want to touch on. I'm going to save the biggest for last. But uh, the first one, and then if you have any, you can hit me with them too. 
The first one is how this story to me feels very classic horror or traditional horror in many ways, Mm -hmm. Um, which can in itself, you know, a lot of traditional tropes can have some like problematic stuff associated with them. Um, But to me, this is like the classic tale of like the city folk going out to rural America and getting involved in some like ancient crazy mysticism shit that you know what i mean tears their family apart so in some ways it's a lot of like the fear of the big city folk of of rural america yeah um which yeah and so i feel like that trope is inherently problematic obviously um again you're sort of othering you know maybe people who live in poverty or or have a different you know uh growing you know grow up differently than you um but it's also got a classic feel to it too right to me this in a lot of ways this feels like the more like stereotypical king story if i just like think about what a king story is from like a macro look without talking about specific story specifics i would think of this kind of story right or, or at least uh, like a family transplanting to another city that's like the basis got to be the basis of like at least half his novels well transplanting to another place right right another place yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah uh yeah that's a good observation the I think it works, obviously, because it's just yeah. like putting putting a certain type of person in a different kind of situation. You know, you can yeah. put put the situation against the person and kind of juxtapose. You can learn a lot about the character very quickly. Well, it's fish out of water, too, right? Because you're they're new there. So they're able to experience this stuff for the first time and, 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 be, and, and also be like, this is this is weird. Like, how why is this this way? So it makes you feel less odd for feeling that way too because you don't you're not familiar with this this setting and this these people yeah um but on the other hand it's actually funny because i spent a lot of time in maine as a kid uh because my grandparents have a have a property in maine and my family would go visit them and so i was actually around a lot of people in maine who spoke in the way that his characters speak mm-hmm. in this novel and so it's actually like a really weird nostalgic thing for me whenever i hear that maine accent that mainer accent and it's it's a uh, it's very evocative and uh outside of king i feel like you don't see a main accent in a lot of places yeah you can tell how much he loves that area i was uh i was listening to the beginning of the audiobook with caitlin and she mentioned that like it's like uh michael c hall is reading is the narrator in the oh. in the audiobook who, who plays dexter That's funny because i listened to part of the audiobook but i didn't realize it was him wow yeah he plays dexter so it's kind of a great voice for for this audiobook and she mentioned just the way that he he was killing the accents like he was really going in on the main accent yeah no it sounded good in the in the parts that i listened because i i had a, i have a physical copy and i was kind of bouncing back and forth between the two but i did listen to some of it and i agree yeah he, he was nailing the accents uh so there's also something else that I that I recognized here that I talked about in other episodes um, with King, and that's his fondness for repeated phrases. Did you pick up on that with this one again? That's something we highlighted in in, in past episodes. Yeah, I can always. And, and here it's it's uh, the Oz, the Great and Terrible, and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, he says it over and over again, and like he loves to do this, and it's cool. Like it's it's like to me, it's a marker of his writing that that I didn't think about until we started studying it for the podcast, mm-hmm. how he likes to pick these little phrases and repeat them. And then, and then the repeated phrases shift over time. Right. And they'll come back and they'll go away and they'll, they'll be replaced by a new one. It has some sort of thematic element to it. Like it's yeah, not every just time something. he brings it back. Yeah. It's, it, it means something slightly different right. in relation to the, to the scenario. Do you feel anything specific with the Oz of the great and the powerful? Is it great and powerful great and or terrible? terrible? terrible yeah it's the, the mispronunciation with the w's um yeah i don't know i mean because it's like it's just something that like a kid says but um 
it keeps i think maybe just like the the particularness of it keeps coming back Mm -hmm. to our character so i mean just in terms of uh not even necessarily the pronunciation but the idea of oz and like what does oz do in in the wizard of oz he's like a behind the scene behind the scenes uh string puller making you think he's more powerful or making you think something else is going on um so I would just say like maybe something there's like inherent lies there right yeah yeah i like that well i have one last big thing i wanted to get into but i was saving it for the very end um it's a little bit like so i never know how much to talk about like personal stuff on these podcasts because it's like people come to listen about the book not about us but to me this like really strongly connected with the loss of my mother and so i just want to talk about a little bit in the ways that i was thinking about it um so she had brain cancer and was sick for years with it and it was it was a tough thing for our family to deal with and i think there is a lot of like weird feelings surrounding like how much of a burden it could be at times and how it was this constant thing we were thinking about and i the way he talks about rachel's sister felt really true to me in a lot in a lot of ways not in every way because it's obviously different you know rachel's sister was a child um that sort of thing um but then also like the way rachel felt like she didn't know how to handle it and she didn't know how to feel and she was too young and i remember feeling that way too even though i was you know an adult when it happened i still remember feeling like i don't know how to handle this i don't know what i'm supposed to do there's no you know there's no like many things in life there's like a way to go and there's like a you know like there's a uh kind of like a blazed trail that you can follow right and in that in a lot of ways in that way there there is nothing you're just kind of like left without any direction and so that connected with me strongly um and so that was also going on through my head while i was reading this um but then to bring it back you know away from something so somber is that i also felt a connection to my mother through this book because she was a huge stephen king fan i don't know if we've talked about this or not but or on the podcast or not but she loves stephen king and i think she read like every book he wrote Mm -hmm. um maybe she missed a few i don't know and i was never really like i did not read stephen king until i was much older Right. Um, I was more into fantasy when I was younger and she read these like horror novels that were, um, which is interesting because I loved horror when I was like really young, but I loved like how to, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark and stuff like that. Like more almost like kid horror, mm-hmm. um, where she was reading this like serious adult stuff. And I remember thinking while I was reading this, like how there's, there's, there's a part where he's talking about history and generations and how these young kids in the Norma's family, um, are kind of disconnected from her and maybe they'll like politely listen to her stories but she's like a different generation than them and they have other things that they want to do and and how it can be kind of sad the, the, the generational divides and how uh, I think there's even a line where he talks about people being um, God's envelopes with like letters and then like you know like a letter is the person and then um, once the letter's read you like put the envelope away you file the envelope away and that's like when people die right um, which is which I was a really interesting metaphor, and uh, he was talking about like the connection to the past, and one of the ways that I think we can connect with the past that I really like is is through reading stuff like this, right? And we can connect with people who lived in a different time and people who um, were dealing with similar things, but maybe thought about it in a slightly different perspective, right? Uh, than a modern one, and uh, so literature in that sense is like a connection. Mm -hmm. for us for you know between us and the past 
And specifically King's literature to me is a connection to my mom because I can think about her reading this novel. Right. And like, I don't know when she read Pet Cemetery. I don't know how old she was, but I can think about the fact that she read this novel and probably thought a lot about death and, you know, the connection to different generations and all that stuff. And I don't know, there's just something that I really enjoyed and was moved by in connecting like my reading of this with her reading it at some point in the past that, you know, I don't know. So I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I wanted to share that. I love that, man. That's yeah. The, I mean, the idea that, that it is kind of the shared experience, even, even if it's not currently, it's some, somebody went through something that you're currently also going through and it's like an exact shared experience. And I don't think you can do that with anything except, I mean, you could do it with a film as well, but other than stories, there's no way to really have the same exact experience as someone else. And like well, through that way, you're having the exact same down to every word is read the yeah. exact same way. Well, there's something very intimate about reading a novel that you don't get from a film. And I know you're a big film guy, and, and, and I'm not, it's not to say that film can't provoke thoughts, and, and, but I think there's a much less reflective element during most movies than there is when you're reading. Because when you're, when you're watching something, you're often a passive observer of it. And mm -hmm. then maybe you reflect about it after it's over. But the process of reading a novel reflection is happening constantly right like you're reading a line and you're thinking about it you're reading this observation and you're thinking about it and so in that sense like it's a more interactive medium just like interactive with your own mind if that makes sense well i think it's just like you said it's the downtime that you have in between so it's like for a film the way that you achieve that is like repeat viewings but yeah but from what you're saying is like i, I totally get what you're saying because you can't you, other than pausing a movie which is you're messing up the flow of what the filmmaker intended um, yeah. There are brief moments in a film where I, I applaud directors who build in moments of reflection in their films because you need I think that you need that and you can yeah. draw a lot about a character or a lot about a situation. But I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, I definitely agree. Well, with like, you. yeah, like showing showing an exterior or showing like setting where nothing like actively is happening that could give you a moment to like come down off of a scene right having a character clearly contemplating having having a moment of levity between something more yeah. serious that's going on but yeah the 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 idea that's what i mean that's just a difference in medium the idea yeah. of a book is you can you can take it as quickly or slowly as you want and and really process it yeah. and i mean i advantage to both to both mediums like it's just yeah. uh, storytelling in general i think is is really interesting in that way because then that's where our podcast really crosses over too is it's like we try to see where people how people are able to take something like a book where you're supposed to get so many things out of it and then cram it into a two-hour film and then you can reflect on it a lot afterwards <laughs> but currently when it's currently going on you catch as much as you can and then maybe check it out again later yeah and in writing uh one of the ways that they can do that is with with line breaks and chapter breaks right like that there's all these built-in spots where it's like asking you to stop and take a moment and and think about what just happened yeah well and like an, a massive this, and like a massive film obviously would have like a um intermission an intermission right and like that's yeah. an old school thing to do but intermissions were for for that reason they were so long and and to allow people to have like 15 minutes to process things but i i did really quickly want to go back to um you talking about your mother because uh -huh. i have i've never lost anyone that close to me but i i constantly think about what you guys had to go through with that and and i knew i was thinking about your mom while reading this book because like really? I'm close to your family and like I like know know of what some of what you guys went through. So for me, yeah. in order for me to kind of comprehend to even like begin to imagine what it's like to lose someone like that that close, um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking of like how you guys had must have had to deal with it and how what what emotions it would. I was like, what is Luke going to be getting from this based on his his experiences? And yeah, and 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 where where whereas I was thinking like, what did my mom think when she read this this part? Right. You know, like I would love to know, you know, like what what she thought about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And because we, we thought differently. She was a very religious person. So in a lot of ways, she she felt a lot differently than than I did. But also, like, when which when in her life did she read this, and had her has her feeling had her feelings about death changed over time? Well, I don't know. And that's not to say that like like even someone of faith can have a similar. I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, even people of faith have like doubts, and they think about you sure. know they constantly are thinking and and weighing their faith, and it's something that people with faith struggle with. So it's like she could have very well had the same exact thoughts as you were having, like what is existentially what does happen when we die like clearly she had a certain thing in her head but maybe she was weighing other things well i think most people with faith have doubts um i think it's it's kind of like that line in uh uh was it game of thrones where he says you know can a man be brave if he's scared right and you know ned says a man can only be brave when he's scared and I think you can only have faith in something that you have doubts about, I think, probably, right? Like, faith is the answer to that. Um, and whether or not you feel it, I think, will, it will, will affect how you feel. I think it's the healthiest way. And, like, I, I have certain thoughts about religion because I was raised in a religious household. But I think from what I saw, and I also identify agnostically now because, for me, I just the there's a lot of, like, ritualistic things that go on with religion and kind of... Um, manipulation and like historically there's a lot of stuff that i just don't and and there's just a lot of things we don't have to get fully into it right now but basically (laughs) having seen a lot of religious people i think the healthiest way is to have a certain amount of doubt and like believe in what you believe in but also be willing to think in different you know be willing to pivot and think differently and and stick to your faith but also like don't do it blindly and sometimes that rigidity of faith and the 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 inflexibility and the unwillingness to admit doubt, I think can be indicative of like a defense mechanism, honestly. Right. It's like at some point the, the prospect of death terrified you so profoundly that you armored yourself with this faith. And now you can't possibly admit that there could be any doubt there because to admit that is to engage with that fear again. And people are unwilling to do it. And I think, you know, I, totally understandable because I, I really believe and I, you know, I, I, some mortality and stuff is something that comes up a lot in my writing and, um, you know, a lot of stuff that's unpublished too, but, you know, hopefully we'll find the light of day soon. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 uh, I think it's like one of the biggest things, you know, that people talk about all the time. It's like one of the biggest things we all deal with. Um, it connects us all and it's a shared experience and, and yeah, I think, uh, I think this novel touches on all of that in all the right ways. Okay, so I have an idea for something that we can do. I want to see if you can uh, try to shoot out some predictions of mm. what's going to happen in the second half of the novel. Some things I feel like are, okay. are clearly being set up, but I want to know what what you think might happen here at the end for next week. Okay, so I'm going to save that for the very end? Yes. All right, we wanted to thank one of our oldest and most loyal supporters, uh, Chris C. Uh, he's been with us since the very beginning, huge supporter of ours. We love him. Uh, shout out to you. If you wanted to find out how you can become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. You can get access to bonus content and all sorts of other little goodies that we uh, we offer our patrons. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those are at ink to film and we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings, which we're pretty active on. We 
post polls. We post, I mean, Luke posts a lot of updates about upcoming adaptations yeah, and stuff. I'm very active on there. He's constantly <laughs> posting that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah. You got to get on there a little more, man. We got to get you interacting on there a little more. <laughs> <laughs> My thing is like, I, I, I just assume that you've already posted. I see news. I see lots of adaptation stuff. And I'm like, he's already put it in the group. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I am there. So if you if you tag me, if you say anything in there, I see all of the posts in in our in, in our council inklings. So. You're more of a lurker in, in the group. <laughs> I'm quite a lurker, yeah. I hang out I hang out there though. So yeah, if you wanted to join that group, that would be awesome and and you can also influence kind of some of the some of our decision making going forward for projects. Yeah, and that's the Council of Inklings on Facebook. Definitely definitely come join that. It's a cool place to be for this podcast. Um and yeah, if you wanted to reach out to us just directly, you can always send us an email to inktofilm at gmail.com and let us know what you thought of this episode or about our King coverage in general. Uh, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and it gets our gets our podcast higher up those charts and gets our helps get our name out there. Yeah, and it's a great way to let us know that you enjoyed this, this episode. So definitely uh, shout it from the mountaintops if possible. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music and Jennifer DeLazana for providing our transcripts. All right. So this is it here. We're going to talk about okay. your theories, your predictions going forward. Um, uh-huh. I feel like you're pretty, you have a pretty good basis for, for Stephen King's writing. So I'm wondering where, where you think this will go. I don't, you know, it's tough, man. This is a tough. So like the one thing is that at the end of the part we read, it's revealed that Gage needed to be or he needed lewis need to be worried about trucks in regards to gauge so like i can predict gauge is going to get hit by a car i can see that coming it's basically confirmed by the text um knowing that that's going to happen the next logical thing is that lewis is going to try and bring gauge back to life using the pet cemetery um so and we've already seen that people are we've seen that animals brought back to the pet cemetery are wrong in many ways so i think we're going to get like a zombie kid um who's been brought back and um yeah i kind of think that we're going to progress and that maybe the kid will will grow with them some and we'll see we'll see like how him being wrong affects their family dynamic um i am really curious to know because um there was a there was a moment when he's talking to judd where he says that he felt like judd was lying when he said that he had never done it and so i want to know like was norma brought back at some point and and or was Judd himself brought back at some point? Um, I'm really curious to see where that goes. And man, I don't. I, I, yeah, it, it's. I think it's gonna go bad. I think we're gonna see. Maybe we'll see the wind go. That would be cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think th- stuff's gonna get crazy. We're gonna get. We're gonna get zombies essentially, or these like off resurrected beings. Um, I think Rachel and Lewis's relationship is destined for bad stuff. Uh, I think Rachel is not going to be okay with him bringing back the the child and uh, that's going to cause a lot of friction and yeah, where it goes from there. uh, Honestly, I'm just really curious to know. I I don't know where it's going to go and I'm excited to read it. Uh, A couple specific questions for you based on your, your theories. What, uh, what's going to happen at church church? Oh, uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think he's going to try and kill the cat again, a second time. And I don't know if it's going to stay. I don't know if it's going to stick. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to try and kill the cat again. So, you, uh, for, for any reason do you think, okay. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. I think the, ca- I think church is going to like attack Ellie or something like it's going to be, 
He's going to do something. Okay. How creepy was that that moment where it was in Gage's room and he tried to like shoo it out of there and it was like wouldn't leave? It was like in, in Gage's closet. When he woke up and it was, was on his chest like purring, purring. And that was the only time the cat purred. Crazy. That was creepy. I like that. Creepy stuff. Uh, all right. And then another question. Do you think when if Gage is hit by a car and killed... Do you think that mm. there's a funeral and everything goes down? Or do you think that Lewis just r- takes the kids straight to the cemetery as soon as it happens? Ooh. Do you think that Rachel ever knows? Or and he, or you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, do you think that he just takes Gage there and, and puts you know, him straight to the cemetery? You know, I kind of, you know, this is going to be wrong. But I can foresee Lewis telling Rachel about the pet cemetery after Gage gets hit. When Rachel is like overcome with grief. And then, th- and then her like okaying it, and then him doing it, taking Gage to the pet cemetery, and then, but then her like, or maybe both of them had just having a change of heart afterwards. But I think more strongly her, like she, I think she's gonna okay with it because she's gonna be so grief, you know, stricken that she's gonna want, she's gonna be reaching for anything. And then, but when she's faced with the reality of it, I think she's gonna, she's gonna regret what they did. And, and uh, yeah, man, I it's gonna be dark. I mean, we've already seen her un- unwillingness to. Uh to accept death so we'll see how it goes that's true all right man i'm excited to get into the second half of this novel we hope you join us next week for that and until then thanks for listening